0: Okay, I want to talk first about this. Authority in the church. Authority in the church. The church isn't a building. We're not talking about the authority that happens just simply between the walls of a chapel. That's not the idea. Jesus is the authority of the church. Can you think of a verse that would substantiate that? Christ is the head of the church. And you might find right here in Ephesians 1, verse 21, He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God the Father put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We know there at the end of Matthew that He says very plainly that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. Colossians is, is similar to Ephesians and it says things like this. He is the head of the body, the church. Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. It says in Colossians 1 and in Colossians 2. What is authority? You have control. You have the say. It, it is the power. It is the ability to lead. It is the warrant or the right to be the voice of say-so. Now look, you can be here today and you can be hearing what I'm saying and oh yeah, whatever. Folks, this is not a yeah, Whatever. The fact is that this is a truth that is going to come blowing out into reality when He comes. It is, now let me ask this question. He is head of the church. He is the authority. But how does He delegate that authority? How do we feel it now? We're gathered together in this place. Where does our awareness of His authority come? Like, hit us between the eyes. How do we know His authority? In the Word. Word. Yes. I mean, you know these verses. This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And you know what Jesus said? Listen to this. Everybody in this room ought to be on the edge of your seat right now. Because this is going to be one of the most glaring, weighty realities that every one of us is going to face. Listen to this. Jesus says in John 12.48, the one who rejects Me and does not receive My words has a judge. Who's the judge? The Word. Listen to this the word that I have spoken will judge you on the last day. You know what's going to happen? You see, we can live our lives right now. Oh, I sin. I rebel against His authority. You hear, you hear what He says. The one who rejects Me and does not receive My words. You see how those go together? You don't receive His words. You reject Him. It's, that's the same with a parent. That's the same with a boss. That's the same with a military uh, commander. They, if they say something and you disobey what they say, you're disobeying them. And you know what Jesus says? You can't run. You can't hide. You can't go far enough away that that voice, what He spoke, is going to catch up to you on the last day. Me too. You can't run away from it. And you know what? He's the authority. Oh, he'll let you get away. Isn't that isn't that how the all of a sudden I drew a blank between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, but you know, the fact that the fact that a sin isn't punished immediately, men get very bold to say, Oh, well, I sinned and I got away with it. No, you did not get away with it. That word that he spoke. That somehow regulates your life that you just rejected? Oh, you may go out and be able to eat a meal today. That's his mercy. That's his long suffering. That's his patience. That's his kindness meant to lead you to repentance. But don't think you got away with violating his authority. It's all gonna catch up to you, and it comes by his word. But let me ask you this. Is there more that Christ has done to delegate His authority to the church? Does Jesus just give His Word to the church and that's it? What I want you to do is think. I want you to think carefully about your Bibles and I want you to think carefully about history. Because if you think about what has characterized the church in the pages of Scripture, right from the book of Acts and through the New Testament and then down through history, I'll tell you this, The vast majority of the history books written concerning biographies of Christians that came after the Bible times, you know why they're written about? Because they had authority in the church. And brethren, what characterizes those with authority? How does Jesus... Listen, Jesus is here. We don't see Him. But He is just as really here as He was when He walked this earth. Where two or three are gathered together, He's here. He speaks to us through this Word, but how else does He delegate authority in the church? Listen, nothing is more essential than the Word, but there is something else, and I want to show it to you. Think with me here. Peter. Now don't turn there, but just listen to this. This comes from 1 Peter 5 where Peter is talking to other elders. And I say other elders because he calls himself an elder. We say, oh, Peter's an apostle. Peter also describes himself as an elder. And when he addresses elders, he says this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising Oversight. Now, here's the thing. You see what's being done? Exercise oversight. He is giving, he's bestowing on certain men the responsibility of delegating authority, his authority. That's what oversight is. Oversight is exercising authority. And are am going to keep going here? But I'm, I'm making listen, we know this. This is this I'm going to go here later in the message. Hebrews 13 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. See, we have a responsibility to submit to the word of God. We have a responsibility that when Christ speaks, we should bow. He is Lord. God has highly exalted his name above every name. But at the name of the Lord, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. But the thing is, we are to obey not just the Word. We are to obey... Listen to this. Obey your leaders. This is Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. But how do we know who these men are? Listen, you remember this? We were just talking yesterday about 3 John and how that's got some, that's got some really profitable things in it. But do you know another thing? Is there is a character in 3 John named Diotrephes. Anybody know that name? You heard it before? Okay, Diotrephes was apparently a, some kind of significant figure. I would say it could be likely he was one of, or maybe he was declaring himself the only elder in a certain church. And what was he doing? Did you know what he was doing? What does John fault him for? Listen to the verse. I have written, this is John, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge. Now, the ESV reads this way does not acknowledge our authority. All the other translations say does not receive us, but it's basically the same idea. Okay, now here's the thing you have John. You have diotrophies. Which one of these guys believes they have authority in the church? Both of them. One is right to think he has authority, and one is wrong. Now, he, one may have a certain level of authority, but he is not bowing to the greater authority. Now listen, this is key. Because you know what happens in the church? There are people who set themselves forth as having some kind of delegated authority from Christ who have no such delegated authority. And so you know what becomes very necessary is how we sniff out the difference between the two. How are you going to do that in the days ahead? Well, listen to this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, Okay, well so, we see it there. Here's a man who was called by God. We know it happens. Some people claim it and it's not real. Some people claim it and it is real. God does call. He does have a will to have men be in certain positions in the church. In this case with Paul, it was apostolic. But how do we know when? And where? It's truly authority that's of the Lord. Well, listen to these verses. This is just some more examples. Matthew 10, Jesus called 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Now we're getting close to something here. Notice this. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Okay, here's a guy that has authority. How do we know he has authority? By the power, by the gift, by the spiritual enablement that Christ gave to him. Well, That's key. Now, we could look at other things. We could look at character. Because obviously, righteousness is is an essential component. But just listen. You know these verses. I know that. 1 Corinthians 9. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least to you, how does... Paul expect the Corinthians to know that Paul's genuine. Because there were, remember, these false apostles or super apostles. I don't know how it reads exactly in the Bible you read. But you know Paul talks about these guys to the Corinthians. So how are you going to know? How are you going to know when a guy is a false apostle? Because remember that happened at Ephesus? You remember in in Revelation chapter 2? That's one of the things that the church at Ephesus gets commended for. They tested apostles and they proved those who weren't. So how do you know? Well, you know what he says? He says to the Corinthians, you know how you guys know I'm real apart from the other guys? He said, there's two verses. And one time he says this, because you are the seal of my apostleship. You know what he means when he says that? Like I preached the Gospel and you guys got saved. God powerfully used. When I preach, remember how he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He says the demonstration of the Spirit and power. When he spoke, Christ owned him as His own apostle. And you know what else he said? He said, you know how you guys know I'm genuine? Because when I was among you, I did. Anybody remember what he did? The works of an apostle. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs, wonders, and mighty acts. Listen, Paul is talking about how to know a true apostle from a false. From a f- super apostle is what the ESV says. And you know what? The same thing is true. How do you know a true prophet? How do you know a true evangelist? Brethren, true evangelist. I'm talking at the tr- deepest level. We ought to all be evangelizing. There's nothing wrong with that. But a God-given gift of evangelism is special it's very unique. There's an enablement and there's a power and there's an authority and there's a fruit. And that is what happens when you go even further to the shepherd teacher. Now listen. Listen. What you need to recognize, you have to listen carefully to this. Authority in Scripture is tied to men's God-given Spiritual gifts and spiritual abilities. Now listen, you don't just look at a man's spiritual gift and spiritual ability and not think about his righteousness and his moral character. Obviously, where God is at work in somebody, there's exemplary character. Because that's one of the things He's going to instill there. That's one of the proofs that He's at work. Didn't Jesus say you'll know them by their fruit? But here's the thing. Go to Ephesians 4. I want you to see this. This is is imperative that you think this way. This will help you think properly about the church of Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 4, we basically have this. Verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then we keep going. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, take note of that. Paul has introduced the idea of Christ giving gifts. And there's a measure. And he's saying that each one of us, all Christians, and we know that from 1 Corinthians 12, that Spirit allots, apportions, spiritual gifts to each one of us as He wills, as He desires. But notice this. Therefore it says, when He ascended... Now he's going to... Interesting thing here is he's going to quote from the Old Testament. He's going to cite this from one of the Psalms that he ascended on high. So get this. Christ ascends. Christ came down. He's going to say, what does that mean? But that he also descended in the first place. But but the idea here is he has ascended. He's victorious. He leads a host of captives. Who are the captives? They were. He's leading... Satan captive. Satan's host captives. And he gives gifts to men. There's a picture of a victorious general in the Roman legions. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended in the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now notice this. You've you got to get this. He gave. What is he giving in this? He's giving gifts to men. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. You see, Christ gives. These are real, tangible gifts to His church. And you know what the fruit is going to be when you find that these people really are gifted by this Christ with these gifts that He's won for us? verse 12, they're going to be able to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I mean, they're really going to be profitable for God's people. They're really going to be profitable for building up the body of Christ. And so, we need to recognize that. When Christ was on earth, now re- hear me, when Christ was on earth, it was very easy to hear Him. Say, hey, you 72 guys over there, I appoint you to go into all, go two by two, and He breaks them all up. And Yeah, we all see Him. We all know He does that. We can see the authority invested in His Father. He's he's speaking. I mean, He's healing people. He's doing all these miracles. He's showing all this authority. By what authority do you come? And He's like, you know, which is easier? George told us a story the other day about... Lowering the, the palsied man down through the roof. Which is easier to say, Rise up and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven, but that you might know? I mean, he's basically saying, I have authority. I have authority to forgive sin. He obviously had authority over disease and over devils and demons. And, and for him just to say, Hey, men, you know what? I give you authority over demons. You know, he said that to the 12. He said, Hey, guys, it's like turning, turning water into wine. You can say, hey, you guys who couldn't cast out demons before, now you can. Well, when you walk the earth, that's all good and everything. But how is His power distributed now? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us, Jesus Christ gives gifts to men. Just like He did to those guys when He said go out. And hey, you guys, you now have power over demons and over disease. But you see, He gifts guys the same way. He's not here bodily But that's what Scripture says. And whatever you want to do with apostles and prophets and evangelists, you could wrestle through that all day long. I have my theories about that. But you can't get away from the fact that shepherds and teachers are right in there. and We all accept that those guys are for today. And and they're gifts. I don't think anybody's going to argue that verse 11 of Ephesians 4, nobody's going to argue that these guys are the guys that have authority in the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers—these are obviously his the the authoritative figures. And so, what what's key in all of this? Well, he's the one who fills all in all. And we, you know, back there in chapter, at the end of chapter one, we saw it that his his he's head over all things to the church with his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We see it right here in chapter four. He just that he might fill all in all. Far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And how does he pour his fullness into the church? Well, he pours his fullness by giving these kind of gifts. That's obviously what's what's happening here. And what we need to recognize is this: it's it's Jesus gives authority to the church by way of the gift. Guys, if you look through history and you have somebody look. All Christians have been given this book. We all have to submit to the authority of it. We all have a responsibility to read it, study, meditate on it. But I'll tell you, through church history, God has given gifts. And those men with those gifts have come across in church history with a kind of authority that rises above and beyond others. And there's no question about it. We recognize it. That is how He delegates. Jesus bestows His authority and power into the church, not primarily by putting men into a certain office. You see, it's not that Jesus just says, oh, pick Tom, Dick, or Harry and stick him in the office and once they're in there, now they have all this authority. Just because you happen to pick them regardless of what's true about them. That's not what's happening here. The, it's, the, the way that he delegates that authority is by the way of the gifts that have been given. brother, what's an office? A it's a position. Yeah, we might think this is almost cheating to say an official position of duty and responsibility because when you define a word, you're not supposed to use the word. An official really has the word office in it, but you get the idea. It's a position that somebody is given that has a duty or responsibility. It can be in government, It can be in a corporation. It can be in the church. But the thing is, in the church, we need to recognize this, that offices only owe their existence to the gift given. It's not vice versa. It's not like you put somebody in an office and suddenly they turn gifted. Christ has to give the gift and the gifted person, then that's the reason why you have an office for this person that's gifted to now stand into a position that those those gifts are going to be used. Christ rules His church through these gifts to individual... and He doesn't just gift men. He gifts women as well. A man's qualification to rule is equal to his spiritual gifts. You lay it down. It'll always prove out that way. Men try to force their own systems on things. But you cannot usurp this. Church history proves it. Even in the pages of Scripture. Show me people with power. And I'm talking stand aside from Christ Himself. And look in the Old and look in the New Testament. And look at the men and the women who had authority. And there were women at times too. There were prophetesses and there was Deborah. But look at them. And what set them apart? It's not simply you stuck somebody not gifted, not enabled, not with the hand of God on them and stick them in an office and suddenly they shine. No. It's the very fact that God gifted them that makes them suitable for such an office as they end up being in. Offices themselves, folks, owe their very existence to the gifts. And no human element No humanly designed organizational structure is ever going to make up for a deficiency at this point. You can't get around it. In the church, I've seen it. Somebody is put in a position, but they're not gifted to be there. Folks, I I had a situation. The very first elder that I brought on board in San Antonio. After a season, I came to recognize you know what I did? I brought him in, I really loved this brother, and we, we cut the ministry in half fifty fifty. I did it. and then once I did it, I began to realize, oh no i 'm really messed up. he shouldn 't be there, there were numbers of things that he could do well, but fifty fifty wasn 't the way to do it because I assigned things to him that he did not do well and then Paul Washer came and visited, and he, he had his uh, the, we had the the uh, Conference where his wife got saved, and I was—I remember walking the inner city, down there where all the prostitutes, drug addicts are—and and, and uh, I was telling him my dilemma over this, and he said, "Brother," and he mildly rebuked me. He said, "Brother, you carnally did that. You did that in the flesh. You weren't led by the Spirit." And I was like, "Oh, I know." I mean, I learned a valuable lesson. But brethren, that's exactly what I'm talking about right here. You cannot put a man in a position and think that that position or that office is going to turn him into something aside from the gifts that he has. You'll, you'll never make up for a deficiency at this point. Now look, don't misunderstand me. I'm not just simply talking about a guy that has a radio caliber voice or could be an announcer at one of your football games. I'm not talking about a guy that just can raise his voice or give this little, you know, Intonation to his voice where he sounds like a preacher. You know, sometimes you've seen, I don't know if you've ever seen these little kids that come from the South in the U.S. and they like stick them in the pulpit. And if they can just sound like one of those Southern boy preachers, then all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, wow, this guy, you know. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the guy with the most bombastic personality and you know, the guy that leads out in, the, out, out in the, the company and in the secular world that you just bring him into the church and you put him in this... We're not talking about that. I'm talking about Christ-given gifts that allow that man in the hand of God to have a grace and a power and an ability to help build up God's people and equip God's people. And those gifts can look different. One man can come along and he can be a church planner, more apostolic, maybe with a small A. Another man comes along, he may have the sweetest pastoral gifting. Another man has really strong leadership. Another man, it's just his love just wins everybody over, his gentleness. Another man comes along, it may be his sacrifice, it may be his vision. And and obviously A lot of times it's a combination of these things. A man stands in the pulpit. He's got the ability to... I mean, look, all you had to do was sit and listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, and when the preaching was done, nobody moved for 15 minutes. What are you thinking? You're thinking there's authority in that man. I mean, I, have, I, have, I can think of certain preachers that I have heard speak and it's like your hair's blowing backwards in a spiritual sense. You just recognize this man is coming with authority. This man is opening up the Word of God under the hand of God, with the power of God. Like this is Christ's gift to the church. And you can't get away from these realities. It's not just somebody who makes futile efforts at something that they are not. not. You know, there's a lot of guys in the church. They want the prestige. They want the position. They want the pulpit. They want to stand in front of everybody. They think they can do it. There's some, you know, just in manly insecurity guys struggle with, and they think they got to do this that or the other thing, or somehow they're failing and they're just not measuring up. Brother, we're not talking about that. You got all sorts of people that like demand recognition and they want they want the forefront. But what we're talking about here. We're observing something that Jesus has given. These are gifts. Because He's given it, there will be grace and power and authority that will break through. And you know what? God's people won't be blind to it. Why? Because God's people, here's the thing Christ is spiritual, Christ gives spiritual gifts. God's people are spiritual. When you put all that together on the same plane, God's people recognize it, it becomes apparent. It's real. Now listen to this. Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 10. Even if I boast a little too much of our authority, get this, which the Lord gave us for building you up, not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Now you need to get that. What's the authority given for? To build up. My authority is to help you. My authority is to assist you. My authority is to equip you. And you know what? When Christ has given me that authority because of the gifts I have, once I exercise those gifts, that's what's going to be accomplished. It's actually going to be accomplished. It won't be futile. It won't be some empty effort. Listen, he says it again. Notice how he connects authority with gift. This, for this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. And you remember what Paul says to the Ephesians that he gave apostles to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And he gave prophets for that reason, and evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers. And so, you know what? Paul Washer was exactly right when he rebuked me that way. And that was a good learning lesson for me. Humanly designed organization structures can never substitute for God-given gift. Never. We're talking about something that is very real. And yet, brethren, there are citizens who become politicians. And they're not qualified. And there's husbands. We have wives that submit themselves to lousy husbands. And you get crooked guys in high places in companies and in the military. But I'll tell you this, in the church, when somebody is truly qualified to be in leadership, the qualification comes and will be recognized by the fact that Christ gave gifts to men. We can't get away from that. Christ gave gifts to men. So, moving on. How are these people identified? Well, we know this. Mark 3.14 Jesus appointed twelve whom He named apostles so that they might be with Him and might send them out to preach. So He appointed. Remember we talked about when Jesus was here bodily? Well, He told guys to do it. Luke 10.1 After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them ahead of Him, two by two into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. But now, after the Lord ascended, how were people chosen to positions? With a church. We're all good with Jesus was here and He chose people. But that was... That was dispensational, right? In other words, that was a unique time when thirty three years he walked this earth. He could tell people, "Go do that, you guys go there, you guys go there okay, but now he 's ascended now, how do and what we 're wanting to do is think biblically, how are people selected? How are people appointed? How about this one? Remember the replacement for Judas? They put forward two Joseph and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two You have chosen. So, see, Lord, You've chosen who's going to replace Judas to take the place. Now they're praying. Jesus isn't there physically anymore to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots. And you know, the Moravians did that you've probably heard John Wesley did that. The Moravians would cast lots much the same way. You see, these guys got to where they narrowed it down. I'm thinking what happened... and you can challenge me on this because we're not told all the details, but isn't it interesting? Why didn't, they, why didn't they just come with a blank slate and say, Lord, tell us who it is? Why didn't they throw five guys out there? Why two? I suspect that what happened when they narrowed all of this down, they looked at character, they looked at who was there from John's baptism all the way to the end, to the ascension, they said, you know, these two guys really seem to fit as much as anybody. And I think they were uncertain at that point. And they said, let's cast... See, that's what the Moravians did. If you go look at the Moravian record, it wasn't just they cast lots somehow over the whole assembly. It's like they studied and they would often come with... I think they had like three candidates to go to St. Thomas in the Caribbean. And what happened was they cast lots. They only wanted two. They were going to send them out two by two. And they had a guy that really wanted to go, but in the beginning he didn't go. Later he did go. But... That's that's what they did, and I, you know, all the ways and reasons why Wesley did it. There's been people throughout history, but it's biblical. Is that what we should do? Cast lots over George? Yeah. Okay, but let's just think biblical here. So then you have Paul. Paul says in Second Timothy, "For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle." And teacher. Now get that. Paul says, I was appointed. I was appointed not just an apostle. I was appointed as a preacher. And I was appointed as a teacher. Now who appointed him? Did they cast lots? Anybody know the Damascus Road experience? Acts 9. Jesus said. Remember what Ananias was told? You go find this guy. What was he over on Straight Street? Go over there and find this guy. And it was going to be shown to him all the things that Christ had in mind for him. Christ appointed him. In fact, when he talks to the Galatians, he says, you know what? Jesus Jesus gave me this Gospel firsthand. And so, here's a guy that even after Jesus ascended, Jesus appoints him. Jesus meets him. Glory makes him blind on the Damascus Road. Now is that normative? George, have you had that experience? Why not? It's biblical. Well, okay. So, so But the, now we recognize that, okay, the 12 were appointed. They were apostles. The 72, they were appointed. What do we even say they are? Maybe we say they're evangelists. Maybe they maybe scripture would actually identify those guys as apostles with a small A. They didn't probably uh, who knows whether Mark was there or Luke was there. Or who knows who these guys were? But okay, in, in Acts there's a replacement for Judas. That's an apostle. Paul was an apostle. But now when we come to elders, okay, let's let listen to this. Acts fourteen. When Paul and Barnabas had preached the Gospel, remember, they're on the first missionary journey, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, these are the cities where they're at, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the Kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in which they had believed. So. Let me just tell you this right off. There is no no mention of a missionary in your Bibles. Not by that word. And you've heard me say this before. The Missio word group is Latin. That's basically the Catholic word for apostle. That is the Latin word for a sent one. In the Greek, it's apostolos. And you can't get away from the reality that many others were called apostles in the New Testament besides Paul and the 12 you can, and Judas. You can't get away from that reality. The word is used more broadly. What is a missionary? Well, a missionary is a sent one. Somebody sent to go accomplish a task. That's what an apostle is. It's somebody sent to accomplish a task either the sending of a message or the accomplishing of a mission. In the most basic sense, that's what that word is. And so, what you have here is the guys who have been sent out of Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, because it says they appointed. It doesn't just say Paul appointed. Barnabas is in here too. They appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. And I think that's key. I mean, look, what we're doing is we're looking at this and we're saying, well, casting lots. Does that come into what we want to do? Is Jesus going to come and specifically call somebody in our midst in a in a way that none of the rest of us are aware of? Is that our expectation? We find that when it comes to elders, well, you had these two guys, Paul and Barnabas. They appointed elders in every church now this is elders before this we've been looking at other types of leaders in the church and prayer and fasting well so there's an appointment men appoint men to lead and it's done with prayer and fasting and they committed them to the lord in whom they have believed and then you get titus you know this paul tells titus titus I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now what was Titus? Titus was certainly not an apostle like Paul or John or James or Thomas or Peter. He's what? What is Titus? We don't really I mean it's, you know what? A lot of times, titles in Scripture just don't really matter. It's more, what were they gifted to do? Well, it's like this guy was gifted to... Titus, Titus was the kind of guy that Paul could send, like Timothy. There were numerous guys that Paul was sending around all to different places. And to do what? Well, basically to come and look out for the welfare of the churches. They had, the, they had uh, responsibility over the churches. And so what was Titus doing? Appointing elders in every town as Paul directed him. So a man choosing men to be in the leadership position. Now, there is what we believe is probably the first picture of deacons in Acts chapter 6. There, when seven men were needed to fill basically a diaconate role of serving tables, what happened? The apostles said, We need these guys. Brethren, look out among yourselves and choose seven men that meet the qualifications. And when the church said, hey, these are the seven we think, they laid hands on them and these guys were basically uh, put into that situation. So anyway, I just want to run through that because we're going to talk more about that in the business meeting. What I want want you to do, we're going to end right now with Hebrews 13.17. So turn there... Hebrews 13.17. I want to talk about submission to Christ-gifted leaders. We've kind of looked at the fact that Christ identifies His leaders by giving them gift. He delegates His authority that way. We've talked about how Christ-gifted men are installed into leadership positions. The different places in Scripture that it talks about appointment and such. Now I want to talk about submission to Christ-gifted leaders. Obey. Listen to this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obviously, this isn't leaders in the government. We know it's in the church. Why? Because of what's said later. They are keeping watch over your souls. Those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, when I was down in Nicaragua, I addressed a pastors' association. They had a, a an association meeting, and we had a we had a, two sisters in our church in San Antonio who were kind of from the Nicaraguan aristocracy, and so when we were down there, they kind of knew some people in high places, and they got. They wanted me to go in and address all these guys and, uh, and gals. And I brought up this verse. I spoke to them about the tremendous responsibility of being a pastor of God's people. And I wanted all of them to remember full well there is a day of accounting that's coming and a lot of those Central, South American, Mexican churches, all oh, the people are health, wealth, prosperity and just out to fleece the flock. And so... I I wanted to put fear and trembling in their bones. But you can all see this from from this verse. That its words are very sobering. They're fearful. They're weighty for those who are or want to be leaders in the Lord's church. I mean, just listen. As those who will have to give an account. I mean, it's one thing, you know, if you... You're being hauled into your boss's office, and you have to give an account for every second of every day of that week that you worked there and what you did and how well you did it. I mean, this is the souls of his people. By the way, his people that it says, if if you touch one of them, you touch in him. As, as much as you give a cup of cold water to one of them, you give it to him. I mean, what you do to him this is if Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he was persecuting the people. And so But here's the thing about this verse. Notice, as good and as useful as this verse might be for admonishing pastors, it's not primarily addressed to pastors, is it? Who's it addressed to? The author is specifically addressing those who are not leaders, but ought to be obeying and submitting to the leaders. You see that? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, those of you who belong to this church who are not leaders. This is God's commandment to you. This is imperative. He expects this from you. You need to submit. You need to obey the leaders. Now, folks, this is not deacons. This is not trustees. Deacons and trustees are never called to be overseers of the church. This is that unique position in the church, that elders, Peter says, elders, you shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. There's our three words. Elders, shepherd, pastor, same word, exercise oversight. Be an overseer. The KJV says bishop. But all three of our words are right there. These are the men. And these alone who God has designated. Now that doesn't mean that you can't have other people with authority. That you can't designate other people to oversee certain ministries. It doesn't mean that. But the men uniquely called out in the New Testament to whom the church is supposed to obey are these men. If you're checking out this church as a possible church for you, Look, if if anybody wants to be a part of this church, you know what the expectation is? That my sheep hear my voice. And if God's Word says it, our expectation is that you're going to be seeking and striving to implement that in your life. And so if anybody wants to be a part of this church, I mean, one of the things that I would say all the time to people in San Antonio is, are you ready and willing to submit to the leadership here? It doesn't mean you have to agree with us. But are you ready and willing to submit to us even when you disagree? And you know, that's the issue. That that's what's being expected. Okay, here's the test. Y'all ready for the test? Are you going to pass it? Because the test is for you. When I say to you, you need to obey and submit to the leaders of this church, and I confront you with the authority of leadership and your submission to that authority, what comes to your mind? I mean, be honest. Did you just welcome that as a good thing? I mean, is it pleasant and peaceful and wonderful to you? Wow, I love that! How many of you thought that? Raise your hand. Ah! (laughs) Do you want to pass the test? Or did you perhaps bristle or hesitate? Did you put up your guard and begin to think of reasons why you might not be justified in submitting to leadership. Oh, there are those in the crowd who first thing they want to do is think of all the scenarios that they don't need to obey the leadership. If that's where you ran first, I just say that's not, that's not healthy. Look, the reality is in our day and age, and this has probably been true for 2,000 years, but you know what's true in our day and age? And I probably see it in the U.S. a bit more than I see it here. But there's an anti-authoritarian spirit in our churches today. And you know what happens? We resist verses like Hebrews 13.17. And that spirit that resists authority, it's impacted by a number of factors. Let's think about some of them. What are some of the factors that would cause you folks... To kind of bristle or scowl or turn up your nose at, at such a such a thing. Obey? Submit? I mean, who do they think I am? Well, the first thing that I would say is just unmortified pride. You know the people that I have had the biggest difficulties with over the year are definitely the proudest people in the church, and typically the people because of their pride that have the biggest problems in their life. They're the first ones that don't think they need to submit, and they're the very first ones that have wreckage in their life. Their marriages are rotten, their relationships are rotten, they can't get along with people, they have difficulties in this place, that place, and the other place. And they can't figure out why. But they're the last people to think they ought to submit to authority. Sometimes it's, rough. I'm not going to submit to that young whippersnapper. And you remember what Paul said, Timothy, don't let them despise your, your youth. Because that can happen. You get, you get the old guy. You know, it's very common for, for a, a, I mean, just in the family scenario, let alone the church. It's very, I mean, Ruby and her brother were going to her dad saying, Dad, you're wrong. You're, you're lost. You're going. And it's like, you know, I wiped your rear end when you were a baby. Who are you to tell me? And that can happen in the church. It's like, you know, you get the young guy and George is kind of young. Some of you are older. Like the whippersnapper is going to tell me what to do? And then, sometimes it's the young guy. You know, Peter specifically calls out the younger ones to submit to the elders. Why? Because young guys have a problem too. They think they've got it all figured out. And then sometimes the problem is when guys are somewhat equal with you. I've had that happen. You get somebody that thinks, well, hey, I'm about the same age. And so they just count you as you know, how how are you gonna have authority over me? We've been saved about the same amount of time, or I even knew you when I was saved and you were lost. Now you're gonna exercise authority over me? And so You know the second thing? The democratic mindset. Brethren, having authority, I have often found it wise to have the whole church vote on things. But some things we don't. But you know what the danger can be when a church that is supposed to be ruled by elders allows the church to congregationally vote? they can ultimately get to think that that's the way church life has to be done with every decision that's made in the church. And the truth is that those apostles chose that method of choosing deacons. And the thing is, there really is no verse in Scripture that says that like elders ought to be chosen by a congregational vote or we ought to have a business meeting and congregationally vote on what we're going to do with money. Personally, I think that there's lots of reasons why there's wisdom in that. But you know what can happen when you live in a country like this or a country like the United States where you basically have voting day and you vote for your politicians and then you come to church and we have business meetings and you vote there? It can get to where the church feels like, well, hey. We've we got a democratic mindset. Congregational voting. We all have an equal vote. I have just as much vote as that guy does. No, that's not the... Listen, there are men who are supposed to exercise oversight. And what you want to trust those men to do is be wise in how decisions are made in the church. But you know what? Through the years, I've, I've had to wrestle when is it appropriate to make decisions behind the scene that you don't know anything about? And when is it appropriate to bring it up for vote? And you want to be very prayerful and very wise. But anyway, another reason why it can be really difficult to submit to leadership is just simply that we live in the age of the Internet. You say, what's that got to do with it? Because the popular preacher is like, well, I'm watching John MacArthur. And you know what? I heard George say something up in the pulpit and I don't agree with it because John MacArthur says this. And so you're going around all the time and you got these, you know, we got the best preachers in the world. You got John Piper out there, and you got you can dig up, you know, they being dead they yet speak. You could pull up R. C. Spoe and all this stuff. You can pull up all Spurgeon sermons. And it's like, well, you know, George up there saying that. Well, I'm saying this because I'm picking on him because we're moving in that direction. You could say it about me. Oh, I don't agree. Well, I've had that happen. I've had that happen where I, you know, come down and somebody's like, Well, you know, you know what Doug Wilson teaches on that? And it's like, well. Yeah, maybe I do, maybe I don't, but you know, you can just—it's like people don't want to submit to you because they've got this free range of all the best preachers in the world, and then there's this. There's just a multitude of churches. You know, there was a day when there was a church, there there was a church in Laodicea, and there was a church in Ephesus, and there was a church in Jerusalem. We got so many churches, and it's not just lots of churches in Manchester. We've got good churches in Manchester, and you know what happens? Multitude of churches. If you don't like something, don't submit. Just move. And so, so we get that. And then there's this. The fall of leaders. Well, I've been hurt. I've been misled by others. And so I just can't trust anyone and that's the way it's going to be. You know what? You cop that attitude, you're in sin. And if you guys haven't gotten over the fact of what a previous pastor did in this place, you are in the wrong. Listen, there is so much said in Scripture about what love does. And love doesn't do that. Love doesn't carry around this I can't trust anybody because a guy years ago did me wrong. Well, if we carry that around, what do you think our lives are going to look like? Somebody's always wronged you. And people are going to continue to wrong you. Does that mean you don't trust anybody? Does that mean you can't submit to anybody? I mean, what is that? That doesn't work, folks. And how about prophet without honor at home? That happens, right? But Jesus said that. Prophet doesn't have any honor in his hometown. Well, he went to Nazareth. And they're like, we know that guy. He's the son of Joseph. He's the son of the carpenter. We know his brothers and sisters. You see, there can be this common thing. Everybody really thinks, oh, if we're going to get a Messiah, we're going to get an apostle, we're going to get a prophet, they have to come from some somewhere unknown. There needs to be this mystery about them. And when they come up in our own ranks, It's almost like we get offended by it. We know George. We knew him when he was up there and lost and crazy. and You know, that that kind of stuff happens. Or, one of the reasons is envy and jealousy. Envy and jealousy crop up and people just sour over the fact that another man has what they want got position, got priority, and they just don't like it. And They're not going to submit. They're going to make his, his life hard. Another reason can be just disagreement. It's like, I don't agree with him on that. And so, what? I don't, I don't need to follow him. I don't need to submit to him. I don't need to obey him. I don't, because I disagree with him at a point. Listen, you think that works for a wife who's told to submit to a husband? It's when there's disagreements that, that this kind of thing gets tested. Listen, brethren, I've probably told you this story before, but there was a time when Ruby and I were really close to an elder at Community Baptist Church. There were two elders. And the guy we were close to left. And there was real friction between him and the other pastor. And Ruby and I were angry. We were hurt we did not want to submit to the leader that was left we wanted to run we wanted to leave but i knew i knew i i was emotional i was thinking too much in the flesh i said ruby we cannot do this i am going to fast until god shows me and you know what it didn't take long i don't think i fasted maybe 2 days and god made it clear do not go and you know what? We stayed, and I submitted to that. I went to him. I, I went to him on a couple occasions, probably. But I, I can remember distinctly having a conversation with him, brother. I'm committed. I'm going to submit. I am convinced. Had I not done that, I wouldn't be here right now. I think that is a kind of humbling that that God. It was necessary, and look. It's not always easy. We're not talking about things that are always easy. That was not easy. But you know what? I look back now. It was formative. It was right. And so, how about something else? A lack of commitment. Now listen, we'll be honest. There are people that are sitting here that kind of do Sunday religion. You come to church on Sunday. Other than that, not a lot of involvement with God's people. We. Kind of call them among the elders that I've dealt with. You call them the people on the periphery. The fence sitters. They're not in the core. And sometimes it's just a lack of commitment. They don't take the church seriously. Let me ask you this question. If you're going to submit to church leadership, then what does that imply? It implies that you are becoming so closely connected with a local church that you're actually in a position to submit to the leadership there. There's none of this straggling. There's none of this church hopping. There's none of this, well, we come to church once every two weeks or once every three weeks and we're barely committed. None of that. And I'll just give you one last reason why it's really difficult for people to submit. Because they're lost. Many Jesus says, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. And you know what? There's lots of people that sit in the church and they hear that you're supposed to submit to you the leadership, and Christ's word has no place in them. It goes right over their head. They can walk out the doors like it was never said. Oh, well, it doesn't matter to me that Jesus said it. Remember, his word's going to catch up to you at Judgment Day. And so, but lost. They just, there's lost. No, there's no belief. That somebody is really called of God, that churches are really the supernatural body with a man that's put in the men, the plurality of men that have been put in leadership over that church who are gifted by Christ. Now, here's the thing. Against all these powerful influences that cause us sometimes to resist submitting to leadership, we come to God's word, and what does it say? You see it there, verse 17 Obey your leaders and submit. So that's the Lord's expectations. Now, notice this. Keep reading. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Did you get that? I mean, the advantage of submitting to your leaders is yours. Do you all see that? Leaders are not supposed to serve and lead for their own benefit. Guys aren't leading the church just so they can get more money in the bank. The advantage is for you. It's for your benefit. And they have to give an account on how well they do benefit you. Do you see who the author is primarily concerned about here? You. Not primarily concerned that the leaders get all the respect they deserve. That's not it. Chiefly concerned with what's going on for your greatest good. You can all see that. I want to make sure you see that. Listen, God doesn't design leaders. Jesus doesn't gift leaders for the church in order to make you miserable. That's not the reason. Or to make life hard for you. Or to provide you with tyrants to push you around. That's not what it says. He does it for your advantage. You all see that? To protect you from spiritual wolves to provide for you, to bless you, to build you up, to equip you. That's it. Listen to the verse again. Christ gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. He gives men He's equipped, He's graced, He's blessed to be a safeguard to you. They feed you with the Word. They shepherd your soul. They protect you from bad doctrine. They deal with sin in your lives. If you've got a faithful pastor, He is not going to let you be sluggish. And He's going to... You can call it what you want. Crack the whip. Kick you in the rear. Come along. Put His arm around you. Smile. Encourage. He's going to pray for you. He's going to encourage you to run this race better when He sees sin in your life. He's going to admonish. He's going to rebuke. He's going to warn. That's the reality. Brethren, God didn't put leaders in the church to hinder you or to hurt you. We're not here to lord our authority over you. Remember what Paul said? We have this authority for the sake of building you up, not tearing you down. We're called to look after your eternal welfare through long hours in the Word and prayer especially. So don't chafe at obeying men who Christ has raised up to love you and help you run the race to glory. And you don't want to chafe at that. And notice this. They have to give an account. Those who will have to give an account. What this means is that the ultimate authority here is not in us. The ultimate authority is in God. That's why we have to give an account to Him. Why? Because He's the authority. I'm not. I don't get to make the rules. I have to answer to Him for how I do this. George is going to have to answer to God for how He does this. What have I done with the Word? What have I done with the gifts He's given me? What have I done for you? How have I helped you to excel? How have I built you up? How have I helped you to run this race? How have I increased your faith? How have I increased your love? How am I helping you make it to glory? And folks, in saying all this, I'm not saying leadership is untouchable. All this idea... I don't know how much you have it over here, but in the health, wealth, prosperity churches in the United States, this idea that somebody is the anointed of the Lord and you can't touch this? Brethren, there is no untouchable leader. If a man is preaching bad doctrine, if a man's life is not where it ought to be, there is a way to deal with it. 1 Timothy 5. 19 and 20 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. There's no Lord's anointed that can't be touched. And even in the church that diligently seeks to biblically follow its leaders, it's always right to be Berean. You do not. Ever want to take what men are saying without having your eyes at talking to Tim yesterday. It's like, look at the man. Hear his teaching. Even if it's the Apostle Paul, you go to this book. You want somebody standing in this pulpit that has you open your Bibles. It takes you to verses. That has you look there. See, brethren, what it says. So that you realize this. He's, all he's doing is bringing out what's in that book. He's bringing that out. He's pressing it. He's not setting his own agenda. He's not setting up his own convictions in this church. Brethren, be Berean. Be Berean to your last day. Obeying your leaders is certainly never a call to sacrifice the nobility of the Bereans, who are more noble than the Thessalonians, Thessalonians. Um, brethren, keep, keep your preachers on their toes. Don't let them be sloppy. Now look, you you know you can make yourself a pest, but if a guy's sloppy in the pulpit, it's not good to just let him go. A bit of slop, and you know it may not be sloppiness at all. It may just be you misunderstood him, or it may be that actually he's right and you're wrong. But don't. Let me just say this: you heard what is said. You can bring a charge against an elder. But it better be on the evidence of two or three witnesses and don't go running around gossiping and slandering and speak, speaking evil about the leadership. Deal with it. If you don't have two or three, listen, there's a reason why two or three witnesses are required. That is so that no single person brings accusations against a leader and that'll happen. There are wicked people in the church. That'll happen. Just like there were wicked people, they were trying to find some allegation against Jesus Christ. And remember how difficult it was for any two of them to line up? You want that to happen. You need to protect the leadership. Even if you suspect him. If those only one person protect him. If there's two or three, hey, that's great. If his sin has been so public, but you want to follow the Scriptures, don't invent your own way to deal with such things if it ever becomes necessary. You see this, obey your leaders. Obviously, it's in the plural. Yes, plurality is the safe way. And that's something that the church needs to pray for. Don't abandon that. Pray for a plurality. That is the safest way of church leadership. Look, even when you have a plurality, that doesn't make them infallible. It doesn't mean you shouldn't stop, should stop being Berean just because you have two or three elders in the church. There's a good accountability there, but still there's no infallibility. So, anyway, just, just, brethren, I want you to get this. Two thoughts here right at the close. Disobeying authority is likely more especially wicked than you might at first realize. Listen to this verse. 2 Peter 2. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Especially those this is an especial type of unrighteous person, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You know what? You can think of it a real small thing. You cruise in here, you fight against leadership. You know what? Scripture tells us that is an especially wicked person that despises authority. Hear the words of the Apostle to the Thessalonians. We ask you, brothers, and this is what I'm asking all of you, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Yesterday, to the men, I was saying how yes, we're to give honor, financial honor to widows, but we're supposed to give double honor to the men who are ruling well especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 9 where it says that very thing. Those who sow spiritual things among you, they ought to reap material things from you. And so, the last thought is this. What's at stake in obeying your leaders and submitting to them? One of the things I want you to remember is what is the book of Hebrews all about? It's about people that were drifting. It's about people that were in danger of becoming sluggish in the Christian race and danger of falling out altogether and making shipwreck. If you've ever studied Hebrews, you know exactly that's what it's all about. And so, when you weigh the whole book of Hebrews, this is not a verse that's simply saying, hey folks, if you don't obey your leaders, they might like to get upset with you and not pray for you as much. This is about people falling out of the race. This is about people not making it. You don't want to know what's most to your advantage and healthiest for your soul? Plead to the Lord for your leaders. Seek, seek to humble yourself and to submit and obey and encourage, to dedicate yourself, commit yourself to a local church. Get in a position where you're there, you're involved, and you're submitting to that leadership. This is about following, look, if you go back up in Hebrews 13, verse 7, it's about following their faith. This is about following their teaching. This is about following their life. And yes, whoever's leading, they need to have an exemplary life. It needs to be one where they have earned people's trust. Their life, is they need to be blameless people. You want to submit to their teaching. You want to submit to their lead, to their example, to their directives. And it doesn't mean you can't disagree. It doesn't mean you can't even have healthy arguments. But there's a way to be respectful in the end. I mean, there's a way for a husband and a wife to kind of to, to get emotional and talk about things. But in the end, there is a way that it should all fall out in light of what Scripture says. And so, you know, we, we want to recognize what all of this is about. This is about making it. This is about not making shipwreck. This is about not drifting. This is about staying the course. Brethren, God has not lightly put spiritual leaders in our life. And so, that is what I wanted to say to you at this hour. Father, I pray that these truths resonate from Your Word in the ears and hearts of the people. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.